Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 14. We're in the midst of a study in uh, the pilgrimage of Abraham and God's grace to him. And we're considering our own walks with the Lord. What does it look like for a believer to be in a relationship with God? What's that look like? When I was in college, I learned it was common for a guy and a gal who'd been on a date or more to have a DTR, uh, a DTR talk, a define the relationship talk. Where do we stand? What are our intentions? Failure to do so could lead to a great deal of confusion, of course, but also heartache. Uh, Some silly boy might go on two dates and thinks that uh, she'll say yes if he proposes when nothing could be further from the truth, or some poor girl might find herself dating for two years and still not be sure of what the intentions of the guy are or whether he's ready to get married. Once you have defined the relationship, you well, then you might sort of know where things are headed and uh, if they're headed anywhere. Uh, Now, A DTR can help move you along. Engagement can get you further down the road. And while engagement is very serious, it's a whole other matter to actually get married. Of course, right. There, vows are taken, pledges of lifelong love and faithfulness are made. Ordinarily, or we might say customarily in many places, including among most in the U.S., though I have one of those grandparents that didn't do it, people exchange rings when they get married. Married is a sign or symbol of the relationship. And again, customarily, though it's done in different cultures in different ways, even a name might be changed when you get married. A Melinda Hoover, for instance, becomes the oh-so-unpronounceable and unspellable Melinda Wenger. And uh, she did that for me. Now, I know you're surprised by that. Something like this, uh, a DTR... And even, we might say, a kind of wedding ceremony, so to speak, is happening between God and Abram in Genesis 17. God defines the relationship for him. But, of course, God was never in doubt about Abraham or his choice of Abram from the beginning. He always knew what his intentions were and had made those clear from the very beginning. But it's nearly like a wedding ceremony here. We have the most thorough explanation of what the relationship really is and the mutual commitments really involve pledges of love are made a sign of the covenant is given and even names are exchanged God reveals a name he'd never revealed before and Abram's name is going to be changed it's extraordinary and so we're going to see that tonight and it's not just for Abram this was done For all of us, and we can all be Abram's children, through faith in Christ, Abram's offspring, in whom all the promises are yes and amen. As the Apostle Paul says, to belong to Jesus is to be Abraham's offspring and heirs of the promises. And so this is not just for him, but for us. And so we need to know what God was doing and is doing. Let's look then at Genesis 17, 1 to 14. Let me invite you to give attention to God's word. 
when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father, we pray for understanding tonight. We ask that you would be our teacher and our guide. We pray that you would richly bless us and transform us by the renewing of our minds. Help us to see great and wonderful things in your word tonight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, this passage answers questions between Abram and God and between believers and God. Questions like, who are you to me and who am I to you? What will you be to me and me to you? And I want to walk you through this passage in, three, in the three major portions of it. Now, the whole chapter covers the entire, we'll, and we'll pick up the rest of it next week. But here we have the preamble in verses 1 to 3, and we have the promises in verses 4 to 8, and then we have Abram's own responsibilities in verses 9 to 14. You have a preamble in 1 to 3 where God's covenant love calls his people to loyalty. 
And then you have God's promises in verses 4 to 8, the blessing Uh, uh, the blessings of God's covenant of grace. As for me, God says, here's what I'm going to do to you and for you and for your offspring. And then verses uh, 9 to 14, now here are your responsibilities. You belong to me, Abraham. These are the responsibilities of those who belong to me. As for you, he says, here's how you are to live before me. And so let's think about those three things. In the first place, notice the preamble, verses 1 to 3, God's Covenant love, we see there, calls his people to loyalty. Notice, he he says, be loyal to me. Be loyal to me who has loved you, who has redeemed you, who has made you mine. Be loyal to me. Now, the timing of it, we're going to see some of the circumstances of this. The timing of it is fascinating. In verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, it says, the Lord appeared to him. And that's being very specific for a very important reason. You're to know and you're to do the math, a lot of time has passed since the last time Abram heard from God. It's been 13 years since God spoke to Abram through the scenario with Hagar. And Ishmael now is a young teenager. And if you track the the story of Abraham all the way back to chapter 12, it's been nearly 24 years since God first called him out of Ur of the Chaldees to the promised land. And so uh, Ishmael is a teenager. Abram is old. Sarai is still his wife. She is still barren. There's still no child of promise after nearly a quarter of a century from when God said there would be. And so you, right there you see that God seems to be, by the way, we count time slow in keeping his promises. Certainly he seems unhurried. He's not all in a rush, right? And that that can feel really strange to us, especially if you're a type A personality, if you're really driven, you want perhaps a deity who has high blood pressure, you know, who's ready to really get things done and get them done now. (laughs) My uh, old uh, professor in seminary said uh, that can make uh, life before God's face, pretty uncomfortable for some of us. Uh, The implications of this are that there's a whole lot of life that can go on in a believer's life that is simply undramatic and ordinary. Uh, Ralph Davis says this, think what went on in those years between chapter 16, verse 16, and chapter 17, verse 1. Well, not much divine razzle-dazzle, apparently, he says. God wasn't breaking into Abram and Sarai's life with sensational spurts of drama. I suppose he says they had clan-wide parties. But most of the time was spent over things like getting goat's milk for the morning cereal, doing veterinary work, brushing your teeth, getting over the flu, settling disputes over water rights. Great swatches of covenant life are like that. It consists of grocery stores and oil changes of taking inventory and standing in a copy machine, of getting allergy shots or going for music lessons and putting or pulling casseroles out of the oven. Just a lot of the Christian with a believing life is ordinary, which raises the question, can you stand the ordinariness of the Christian life? There are people, I've, it's, it's in my heart, I've 
been there, longing for the mountaintop experience, right? Where every day is higher than the last in your spiritual apprehensions of God and his glory and grace. And you're tempted, if it's not like that, to walk away from God, to chuck the whole thing. People crave sometimes these spiritual highs and then get disenchanted when the everyday walking with God isn't like a day at Disney World with something new and exciting to see every moment. But the Christian life is ordinary. And it's not just mundane, it could also be maddening. This would have been a challenge to his faith, but consider even more difficult things. Consider over the course of these years, how many times did Abram meet someone and they... They asked him, as they do in the Oriental culture, very personal questions about who, who are you? Where are you from? Who is your family? Well, are you married? Do you have children? And, and for how many years did Abram have to say, well, oh, what's your name? My name is Exalted Father. Really, how many children do you have? Well, I have, I have no children. Or how, how often, how many years? 13 years, he said, to say, yes, my name is Exalted Father, and I have, I have one child, Ishmael, and it's not even with Sarah, my wife. For decades, this would have happened. How many times did he and Sarah, over that period of time, clash over the whole Hagar soap opera? How often did he tell his wife and his concubine Hagar and Ishmael and his extended household and his servants and his trained fighting men, the visions that he had seen of the Lord, the great and spectacular promises that God had made to him and and that God had blessed him and that there would be a child who would come from him who through whom God would bless all the families of the earth. How often did he say these things? And there was absolutely no fulfillment that anybody could see with the human eye. How often did people snicker about it behind his back, laughing at him for his vain trust in God's promises of this one to come who simply hasn't come? How often do people snicker at Christians today? For believing that God became man, died on a cross, was buried, rose from the dead, bodily ascended into heaven, now sits at the right hand of the Father, rules and reigns over all things, and is coming back again, physically, bodily, to create a new heavens and a new earth. How many people? Mock, scorn, scoff, laugh, chuckle at these things. For the believer, walking with God, God can seem seem slow, the life of faith can seem mundane and maddening, and faith can grow weary of it all. And so God comes to him again at the age of 99 to reiterate his covenant, to refresh and restore Abraham in his faith, to strengthen him, and even to give him a sign in his flesh. That his promises are true and will be fulfilled. And so it is that the Lord appears to him, verse 1, and says, I am God Almighty, or I am El Shaddai. I am God, the God of power, El, and Shaddai, the God who is 
all-sufficient, who can meet every need. I'm the God, uh, the God who can do anything He wants to do. The God who can promise and the God who can deliver on my promises. And then He says to him what? Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and make multiply you greatly. So, right here, you have God expressing once again his steadfast covenant love and mercy to Abraham. I'm going to be your God, Abraham. And God calling him in the same breath to loyalty, covenant loyalty. There are responsibilities, mutual responsibilities, when you're in a relationship with God. God's grace initiates that relationship and it brings him into relationship and he is called to walk before the Lord and be blameless. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means he's to live before the Lord, before his face. He's to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. He's, he's to walk day to day with an eye towards God, uh, towards God and in light of God, living for God's glory, believing in God's promises, and he's to be blameless and here. Uh, it doesn't, I don't believe, mean to be perfect. God certainly calls his people to perfection, a perfection none of us can have in this life because of our sin. But here, blamelessness would be more like sincerity or genuineness in his walk. He's not to be a hypocrite. He's not to be fake. He is, his life is to be lived from the heart before God. Job was called blameless in his generation. It doesn't mean Job was without sin, that he was a perfect man, but he was blameless. So here, in other words, he's to be loyal, genuinely loyal from the heart to the Lord who has loved him, to live gratefully to the God who has graced him. And so you see here that in a gracious relationship with God, there are responsibilities. The grace is unilateral. God unilaterally chose Abraham and decided and determined, I'm going to richly bless you, Abraham. And there wasn't anything Abraham had done to deserve that. When God found him, he was an idolater. And God rescued him. And Abraham hadn't done anything to maintain God's grace to him. Uh, Every time we turned around, Abraham was tripping over his own feet and stumbling and falling. He doesn't deserve this relationship. He doesn't maintain this relationship. There's not anything he could do to keep or to guarantee its fulfillment. That from beginning to end is God's grace to him. And that grace brought him into a relationship. And relationships are mutual. Relationships are bilateral. Relationships are between two people. In other words, to put it another way, it's not like God just stepped into his life and, and sort of said from, from you know, off, off screen, now Abraham, I, here's what I'm going to do. Here's all my plans for you. Uh, and, and that's really all you need to know. I, I just want you to have that information. I'm going to do these incredible things for you. Now just carry on with your life. Go, your, go about your business. Keep on doing whatever it is you're doing and we're doing before I showed up in your life. I mean, it's not like that at all. God, in being gracious to him, brought him home to himself. In New Testament terms, we might say this. God justifies the ungodly. He pardons and accepts the wicked It's all grace. It's totally undeserving. But God also adopts us into his family and he makes us one of his own and he changes us and he is determined to 
conform us to the image of Christ. Or to put it in the language of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you, Paul says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. Or to put it in the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose. Paul didn't hesitate to tell you all the wonderful things Jesus did for you and then to call you to loyalty to the Lord who has graciously loved you. And so that's what the first thing we see here. Now the second is this, the promises. And God reiterates them at great length. Verses 4 to 8, we've heard them before in chapter 12. Smatterings of them in chapter 13 and 15 and on. And God evidently needed Abraham to hear them again, and he wants us to hear them again. And he not only reiterates them, but he deepens Abraham's understanding of what it is that God is promising him. And there are multiple promises. So just look with me as your eyes scan down verses 4 to 8. And actually the first begins at verse 2. God says, I will establish or I will make firm my covenant with you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So he's going to have all these offspring. He's going to become a great nation. Then he says, second promise, verse 5, Abraham, or Abram, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. A multitude of nations are going to come from you, Abram. And therefore God changed his name from exalted father to Abraham, the father of a multitude. Because God promised to make him the father of a multitude of nations. Now, that probably doesn't so much mean that God is going to divide his offspring into many nations as much as it is that God is going to gather up the nations of the world and bless them in Abraham as their spiritual forefather. For we know that Abraham will have a seed, that seed is Christ, and the promises are to Abraham and Christ And Christ has redeemed people from among every tribe and tongue and language and nation across the whole earth and brought us to God out of every tribe and tongue, Jew and Gentile. He's going to be the father of a great multitude of nations. And third, verse 6, God will make him the father of kings, not just of nations, but of kings. And the book of Genesis tells us, in fact, that the Midianites and the Ishmaelites And the Edomites and the Israelites actually all have kings who are descended from Abraham. Ultimately, even the king of kings himself, the son of God, the Messiah, will be of Abraham. The fourth promise is verse 7. God will include Abraham's descendants in this covenant relationship. The covenant is not only for Abraham but also for his descendants. And what you have there is God establishing uh, a community. God isn't dealing just with a single solitary individual in salvation, but God is creating the church, the community of people who gather, whole households gathered, individuals and families together around the promises of God. Then you have a fifth promise in verse 8. He will give the land to Abram and to his descendants. Now, interestingly, when God first gave that promise back in chapter 12, verse 7, 
God said, I will give to your seed this land. Now here in chapter 17, verse 8, God says, I'll give to you and to your seed this land. And that poses a conundrum because in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 15, God had told him he's going to die without inheriting the land or seeing his seed inherit the land. And it will be 400 years of sojourning in a foreign land before his descendants come back into the promised land. So how is Abram going to enjoy this land by inheritance? The implication, of course, and it's very subtle, but the rest of the Bible makes clear it's going to be post-death. This is an implicit argument for the resurrection of the dead. And that isn't really surprising because Hebrews tells us that Abraham was looking not for a dry, dusty piece of land in the Middle East, but he was ultimately looking for the heavenly country, God's country, the new heavens and the new earth, whose designer, architect, builder is God himself. And so this land promise has, has, has blown up and become expansive. Uh, and so the Bible says the meek will inherit what? The earth, not just Canaan in the Middle East. And Abram will enjoy this promise. And so death can't ruin his inheritance and death cannot ruin your inheritance. And then the sixth and final promise you see in verse 8 when he says, I will be God to you and to your seed and to your descendants. And he repeats it. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. And at the end of verse 7, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And at the end of verse 8, for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. In other words, the last promise is what? It's the promise of marriage. God says, I will. God says, I do. God says, I give myself to you, and I take you for my own. This is the best promise. It's not just about all the stuff he's offered us. And in in New Testament terms, it's not just about the pardon of sins. And it's not just about the promise of heaven, but it's that we get God and God gets us for himself. He calls us out of darkness and into light. Once we were not his people, but now we are his people and he is our God. This is the greatest gift and this is a reiteration of the promises and he wants Abraham to know it because he's going to ask Abraham. He's going to ask Abraham to be loyal to him, to walk before him. And to take the sign of the covenant and apply it not only to himself but to all his male children. And and to mark his own body with these promises. So that he can walk around with this promise. And you see then the responsibility, and this is the last thing, the responsibility of God's covenant people here. Keep the covenant, verse 9, and apply the sign of the covenant. In other words, walk before me and be blameless. And be circumcised. Now, what is all this about? In Genesis 15, God cut a covenant with Abraham. That's the language. In Genesis 17, he commanded Abram to be cut with a sign of the covenant. In Genesis 15, uh, the covenant is inaugurated or begun. In Genesis 17, it is confirmed and signed and sealed in his flesh so that he'll never forget it. 
You remember in Genesis 15, God cut the covenant. What did he do? The, the animals were cut in half and laid side by side and down the aisle of the animals, the animals of sacrifice, God in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch walked while Abraham was passive, merely observing from the outside. And it, it was as though God said in making all his promises to him, Abraham, if this covenant with you is not fulfilled, may it be done to me as was done to these animals. May I be killed if I am unfaithful to what I have promised to you. If the covenant itself is in danger of breaking, I will bear the curse of the covenant. And we know that took us right to the cross where Christ died, not for God's failure in covenant, but actually for our failure in covenant. And so Abraham was simply to stand back and, as it were, see the salvation of God. Watch God make this great promise, this great covenant. Now in chapter 17, God commands Abraham to be cut in his own flesh with a sign of the covenant. It's the same covenant, but now the sign will be applied. This is the first time in the Bible circumcision appears. It's not the first time in history that circumcision appears. We know the cultures around Israel, except for the Philistines, actually practiced circumcision, usually either as entrance into like priesthood, as a ritual purity exercise, or entrance into manhood at, uh, in your teenage years as an acknowledgement of those. And that's why the Philistines didn't do it, and that's why David could say of, of Goliath, you uncircumcised Philistine, and scorn him. But God took a ritual which was known to them through the cultures around them and actually made use of something that existed, though giving it an alternate understanding for his people. He did the same kind of thing with Noah, uh, with the rainbow, uh, as a sign investing it with a particular significance. Now, in verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. What does the sign point to? The sign points to God's faithfulness to his covenant. The sign is not about Abram's faithfulness. The sign is not a reward to people because of their faithfulness. It's a sign they are to receive, not because they are faithful or they have honored God or they have believed in God. It is a sign that points to God's faithfulness to his own promises. And, and when was it done? To, uh, it was done to Abraham the believer, and it was to be done to any other adults who would enter into this covenant relationship. So the adult trained men in his household and Ishmael as the teenager and others and foreigners who wanted to come into and belong to the God of Israel were called to embrace the sign of the covenant. But also it was to be given to the children at eight days old. Even the male children were to be circumcised this clearly distinguishes the males from the females. Do not misunderstand. This is not about the mutilation of uh, females as is practiced in some places around the world. And and I last read that the FBI says there may be up to 500,000 cases of female mutilation in the United States of America 
in certain pockets and communities. But that is not what this is talking about. But it was for the male children here. The, the women would have been included in the covenant community and under the sign through their relationship with their father and eventually if they marry through their husband. But the sign of God's spiritual promises was to be given not only to Abraham the believer, but also his physical descendants, even if they grow up and reject the covenant promises. God wanted his physical, visible community marked with the sign of his spiritual and covenantal promises. And he didn't say, put the sign on the spiritual seed. He didn't say, put the sign on the kids who grow up to embrace this. And you know without a shadow of doubt in your own heart that they really believe this. No, put the mark, the the mark of spiritual promises on the physical descendants of believers. That's why both Jacob and Esau received the sign of the circumcision. It wasn't a sign here of ethnic realities. It doesn't mean you're born Jewish. Even if you were a foreigner bought with money by the master of your house, you were to be circumcised. What did the sign do? It provided an outward mark of the covenant community. Everybody who had received the sign was counted to be part of the church of the Old Testament. Verse 14, everyone who is uncircumcised but who dwells in the midst of Israel was cursed or cut off. So either be cut with the sign of God's covenant or should you refuse God and refuse his promises and refuse the sign of his promises, then you were to be cut off from the community in which those promises were offered to you. You have broken the covenant, it says. In other words, if you won't identify with God and with his people, thereby rejecting God and his people, well, then you will be rejected as well from the covenant. And we might add that if a man was too ashamed to receive the sign of salvation because it was applied to that part of his body, then with what shame might he look upon a God who would become man, be hung naked on a cross, received as a traitor and criminal by the, by the people, and die for sinners? God says you need to identify with me, even in humiliation. You need to identify with my people and share in the sign of belonging to my community. And notice that this is an everlasting covenant, the last phrase. And so we might reasonably ask, well, does that mean that the sign is also an everlasting sign? And the answer to that is both yes and no. Do all Christian males need to be circumcised? Absolutely not. There is no particular religious significance uh, in being circumcised or having your male children circumcised today if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're free to do that or free not to do that, according to the Bible. We're not Jewish in that way. Circumcision has now been changed in the New Testament to baptism. And both males and females receive baptism. Paul makes this clear in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, when he writes to the Colossians and he says, In him, or in Christ, you were circumcised. 
having been baptized. Now, if you look at that passage, he throws a bunch of other words in between that explain circumcision. But the flow of the text is, you have been circumcised, having been baptized. And this makes sense to us. The bloody sign gives way to an unbloody sign. Because the blood that cleanses from sin has come and been poured out on the cross. The once for all blood that truly cleanses those who are defiled. Just as the bloody sign of Passover gives way to the unbloody sign of the Lord's Supper. And so this was an outward picture of what was to be an inward reality. Circumcision of the flesh was to really be circumcision, circumcision of the heart. The, the cutting away of the filth of the heart, just as baptism outwardly is water on the skin, but it's to be of an inward baptism. The washing away of the filth of our sin through the blood of Christ. The sign receiving it doesn't guarantee the authenticity of the one who receives it. In other words, receiving the sign doesn't make you a believer. It doesn't certify that you have undoubtedly and necessarily become a believer or guarantee that you will one day for certain become a future believer. Some who were circumcised were not genuine. So you have the story of Jacob and Esau, just as some who are baptized haven't become believers and may never become believers. It does guarantee you the authenticity of what God has promised in it. What is promised is received not on the flesh, but through faith. What is promised is sure and certain. Everlasting life with God forever in the new heavens and new earth as a pardoned person adopted into the family. Listen, if you graduate from school, high school or college, you will, Lord willing, be given a diploma by your university so that you don't wake up in the middle of the night, 10 years down the road, with nightmare tremors that know you haven't really finished that class that you thought you had finished, but you had quit going to. And so fearing that you're not really graduated. But no, the university, well, that and an employer might ask to see it, though I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen very often. But you'll be given a diploma. The diploma will have a seal or a, or a mark on it by the university. The mark authenticates the diploma. It guarantees the authenticity of the document. It says the document is not fake. And we as a university are not kidding. So with baptism. So with the Lord's Supper. The sign functions as a seal. It doesn't just represent Jesus to you. It confirms to you the guarantee that God stands behind what he has promised to you and offered to you in Jesus, and that is to be received through faith. The promises aren't fake. God isn't kidding. God isn't insincere. Like, though he did it much more perfectly, like when I got engaged to Melinda and we were separated from Cincinnati to Oklahoma City, I gave her a ring. And it was a promissory ring, an engagement ring. That ring said to her, or I meant it to say, 
I want you. And I promise that come November, I will meet you in the church sanctuary on the date of your choice. And we will exchange pledges to one another. And I will pledge my loyalty to you forever. And I will become yours and you will become mine. And then in November, I showed up because I'm no fool. And I gave her another ring. I gave her a wedding ring. I gave her another sign. A pledge of my loyalty and love. And we got married. And if she has or has had any doubts, she can simply but look at that ring. God gives us that kind of visible reassurance of his covenantal promises. And they are maintained by the strength of El Shaddai, not by the weakness of man. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. Uh, thank you even now as we prepare to come to this, the Lord's Supper, that by simple means of, of bread and wine, you sign and seal Christ to us and the benefits of belonging in him. We also thank you for our baptism and the washing away of the filth of our sin in Christ. True spirit baptism and the privilege of having it marked in a physical way upon us. Help us to remember all that you have promised and to rest in your goodness to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.